What I'd like to talk about this morning with you follows up on what we've talked about the last two meetings somewhat tangentially, but I think it builds upon them. But it also addresses some questions that have come up, especially from novices in the past few months. Uh, so the title of my talk is Action and Contemplation, Being and Doing. Uh, so here's how it follows on what we've talked about at the last two meetings. So on Palm Sunday, I spoke about uh, the scandals going on in the church right now. And I mentioned that something that, that I find puzzling and a little bit disappointing is that when commentators weigh in on what's going on, uh, we don't ever hear about where Christ is, as if Christ is somehow distant from us and is not going through what we're going through with us. The, the impression I get is that somehow Jesus is, is at a distance, kind of watching to see, waiting for us to do something. Um, and that's another thing, is that a lot of commentators, especially Catholics who are commenting on this and are worried about the situation, uh, give the impression that there's something we need to do. We've got to get out there and complain, or we've got to stop giving money to the diocese. None of this is necessarily wrong or bad, but it's a lot of responsibility to put on everybody, as if we're going to fix the problem. <laughs> it's a problem that's bigger than any of us can fix. It's bigger than the Pope can fix. Um, so we just have to... We have to be patient till the thing works itself out and we remember what it is we need to do to be holy. But in the meantime, part of what I encourage us to do is just accept the situation to a certain extent. That doesn't mean we can't do anything, but, but we should be careful not to act out of fear or hurt or something like this. But if we're going to act, it should be because the Holy Spirit has actually moved us and given us the opportunity to make a difference in some way. Otherwise, we simply accept the suffering that we go through, right? So this, is, this has something to do with being rather than doing. Okay, so that's the first thing. And we, we can be confident that it's enough just to be Christian. Because if we are part of the body of Christ, there's nothing that can harm us. Okay, so we, we don't have to be anxious. This is a really key thing. Um, you know, the, the new commandment that Jesus gave us to love one another is, that's the traditional new commandment. But the, the thing he commands us to do more than anything in the Gospels is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He's got it taken care of. We don't have to save ourselves. We're already saved. It's okay. So uh, now that we know God's love, then we, we have the motivation to act out of that love. Right? Because we're not afraid. And so one of my concerns is that if we act out of fear or resentment uh, or embarrassment, the, these motives will cloud our sense of belonging to Christ. And it could even lead us into uh, some sinful behaviors if we're not careful. Okay? Last month I spoke about the Holy Spirit. And uh, if you remember what we ended with are two areas where Yes, we are active uh, co-operators with the Holy Spirit, but primarily the Spirit is the one who is the active principle in our lives. So the Spirit produces fruits, for example, of patience, of love, and so on. The Spirit also gives gifts that perfect the virtues. And so uh, one of the things we need to do is to learn to have a spiritual point of view, to see 
from the vantage point of God, as it were, through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, to see what God is doing. God's doing all kinds of things all the time. Jesus says in, in John's Gospel, His Father is always at work. So we can relax. It's, it's okay. Uh, we have an all-powerful friend. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really going to be all right. Uh, but I also know that from some of the things I was talking about last month, one can get the impression that there are all these things we need to do. We've got to work on patience. We've got to work on justice. We've got to work on all the stuff to work on. And wow, when am I going to have time? <laughs> right? That's the problem. But again, part of what you can do is just assume that the Holy Spirit is already at work. And then just watch for the, the uh, results. Try to see if you can notice what God is doing. And then thank Him for it, right? So this is just a way of seeing the world, a way of uh, being attentive to the world through uh, a sense of belonging to God. Uh, so I want to talk this morning about the primacy of contemplation over action and of being over doing. These are old-fashioned uh, ideas in the church, and they were basically taken for granted uh, until maybe the 1930s, maybe going back a little earlier. Some of the, what we call the modernist controversy of the late 19th century had to do with some of these questions. Um, I, I pinpoint the 1930s because for me, this is where the liturgical movement kind of uh, gets a little cloudy. So the liturgical movement in the 19th century, early 20th century, was about helping the laity and others, but primarily the laity, uh, to see what's going on at the liturgy and understand it, okay? Uh, the liturgy is very beautiful, but the primary agent in the liturgy is Jesus Christ. He's the high priest. Anytime we celebrate the liturgy, it's Jesus who's doing the work. We are somehow embodying that so it can be seen in a symbolic way by everyone. But we're not doing it. It's, it's again, it's, there's not much pressure on us other than just remember to do the rubrics more or less correctly, right? Um, you know, and, and again, in, in Catholic rubricism, the only rubrics you absolutely have to get right for Mass, for example, is you have to have proper matter, correct bread and wine, and the priest has to say about a dozen words correctly, right? That, to have a valid Mass. The priest has to have the right intention, he has to ordain, et cetera, et cetera. But all these things we normally take for granted. <laughs> we don't have to actually ask, uh, is it the proper bread? But yeah, of course it is. Right? So uh, all we then do is sit back and try to <coughs> appreciate what's happening, what God is doing through the priest, through the people the gathered together, through the lector, the cantor, the thurifer, whoever it is. Uh, God is is helping us. He's saving us. He's sanctifying us right now. It's happening. All we have to do is be aware of that. We don't necessarily have to try hard to feel holy or be holy. We simply receive God's grace during these times. Then God sends us forth to do stuff. You know, we, we have good news to share with everyone. God loves us that much. And all you have to do is say yes and believe. You know, that's all it takes. And then join us. Uh, come find out what's going on at the sacraments. Uh, so this was taken for granted until, again, the 1930s when the liturgical movement, uh, two things started to happen. One is that it, it became connected to social justice in a way that um, there was this feeling like the liturgy should equip us to do something else. We should go out and uh, we should tailor the liturgy to help us to see our obligations. So suddenly there's a shift toward doing stuff. We've got to get out there and preach the good news to the poor. We've got to serve. We've got to do this and that. 
All that is true again, but, but you see what we've done is we've, we've flipped it around. We've put the doing, the doing is determining how we're being at the liturgy rather than the being at the liturgy is determining what we're doing outside, okay? And then similarly then, uh, this goes hand in hand, we started to change the liturgy. We, we had reforms. The reforms are not necessarily, uh, on the whole, I think they were good, uh, but I think we all know that they were taken beyond what was intended and the liturgy was uh, simplified beyond what was expected in the council documents. And the feeling was, well, we don't want to make it too confusing for, for people, right? Instead of inviting people and assuming that, that it's so beautiful that people will want to learn about it, um, we figured it's too much work. We've got to sort of get through the liturgy, get our message for the day, and then get out. <laughs> and um, there's this sort of feeling of... of Anxiety. We've got to get get done. We have to do this thing here. Um, now, sometimes you know this. Uh, there are other factors at work. So, uh, as many of you know, uh, most of my childhood I spent in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And so, if you had the uh, eleven o'clock mass uh, and you preached a little too long, people would get antsy because they might miss the kickoff of the game. Right. <laughs> Um, and in fact, um, at my mother's parish, there was a Norbertine priest, and he went on an especially long sort of 20, 25 minute rant uh, one, one morning at Mass, uh, accusing people of putting the Packers before God. <laughs> and uh, um, I, need, I should ask my mother what happened the week after that. Now, if, if I talk about the primacy of contemplation over action, um, I suppose... If you just sort of test yourself internally, uh, and I, so again, I'll just say to you, I'm here to tell you about the primacy of contemplation over action. If at some level your reaction is this, oh, he's guilt tripping me on top of everything else I've got to contemplate, uh, then you really need to hear what I'm going to say. (laughs) Because that's not what I mean at all. Again, it's about doing what we're already doing, but as Catholics, you know, as, as recognizing God's presence in everything. So uh, being contemplative in the moment, um, and that can take many forms. So relaxing with where we're at and trusting that God is leading us in the right direction rather than feeling like we're falling behind in some way. So uh, let's talk about the primacy of being over doing some more. In Genesis 1 and 2, at the end of each day, God looks at everything he makes and he says, it is good. He doesn't say, all these animals and stars do useful things. He says they are good. Okay? Just because they exist, they're good. Okay? So just because you exist, you're good. So you don't have to do anything else. Uh, that in and of itself is, makes you uh, worthy of other people's appreciation and love. Similarly, other person's existence make them worthy of your love and appreciation and of God's love and appreciation. You don't have to do anything. This is, you know, this is one of the reasons why we're, we're struggling in culture to uh, deal with things like abortion, euthanasia, um, uh, you know, it, because persons after a certain age can't do anything useful, right? And so we think, well, then that's not, we, it, it's okay if they die then because they're not contributing anything. But we would say, no, just because they are. Just because they, this is a human being, this person is worth living, having around. It's okay. 
Um, and so we just tailor our world around this, this recognition that things are as they are. Uh, but this is a, a difficult thing to train ourselves to see because uh, the culture has gone in this direction where we need to see, you need to put out, right? You're always on the clock. You've got to got to show me that you're actually, you know, producing more than we're paying you, <laughs> as it were, right? Um, and uh, and you know, I, I, I'm not I'm, I'm I'm not a socialist, but uh, uh, that kind of pressure just sets the tone for how we understand people in our relationships. Um, now, when God looks at all the things He's created and He says, "It is very good," that's the last thing He says. It's very good. This is a revolution in the in the ancient world. Okay, um, scholars will tell us that. Genesis 1 is a retelling of a, a variety of creation myths that were extant in the ancient Near East. Most of these myths went like this. There was some gigantic clash of primordial gods, especially one of them is usually the sea god, who stands for chaos. So you can't walk on the sea, you fall in, and the sea is tumultuous. And if you get a tidal wave, it can wipe out miles. And so the sea is scary and chaotic. Dry land is good. So there's this big battle among the gods and the sea monster is defeated and then the god makes the earth. And then uh, to help make sure that the earth stays put, the gods create human beings basically as slaves. And say like, okay, here's your work, get to work. And then the gods luxuriate in having saved everybody, <laughs> right? And they get sacrifices from the people and so on. But basically, human beings have kind of a sorry lot. Uh, the ancient Israelites take this and they flip it on its head in a way. And they say, no, God doesn't need to fight anybody. There's no rival to God. God simply creates by speaking. He says, let there be light. And that's it. There is. And because he speaks, uh, the things that he, create, he creates through speaking are rational. We can understand them because we also speak. So we can look at things and say, ah, I get it. That's really beautiful. Um, the story I love to tell about this, uh, uh, this is a little bit nerdy, but um, when I was in college taking calculus, uh, I, I was drifting off like I often did in class, you know, the teachers writing these long Taylor series on the, on the chalkboard. We still had chalkboards in those days. Um, Taylor series, you know, these are sums that have, you know, sometimes, well, infinite numbers of, of numbers in these sums. And, and you, you know, you show this in various formulas and so on. Anyway, he's writing this Taylor series on the board and explaining it, blah, 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 blah. And then he writes, uh, yeah, and so the, it, what we see at the end here is uh, the, the number e raised to the power uh, i pi minus one equals zero. And I looked at this and I thought, Okay, so these are, these are sort of the five most fundamental numbers in the universe, and here they are in one really easy formula. Wow, that is incredible. I thought this is a little, little joke that God put in there for us to figure out. Like, this is amazing. Uh, and there's so many of these things that, that we discover when we look. We say, yeah, the world really is a, a good place. It's really amazing. Uh, it's amazing that animals can do what they do. It's amazing that we can think and talk. 
Uh, it's amazing that we can have children, you know, it's all these things. Uh, so we can do this. God has invited us not to be his slaves, uh, but to share in the joy of, of discovery, of, of creating, of working on a project together, you know. So we're God's co-creators. That's the, the language that uh, Vatican II uses. Uh, we, we share in this uh, godliness. Uh, we can see these things in a way that, the, that you know, I, I love our cats, but they, they don't do Taylor series. <laughs> uh, so uh, Adam and Eve, shares, they share in this project, Adam names the animals, right? So he, in a sense, comes to appreciate them by giving them names, uh, remembering what they're like. Names help us to understand things. Work the work that Adam and Eve have to do only becomes toil after sin because now things don't work anymore. They, things aren't going according to God's plan. They're broken in a, in a sense. And now work is no fun. And uh, instead of the water just welling up from the earth, we've got to irrigate. You know, we've got weeds. There were no thorns and thistles in the Garden of Eden. They only showed up after they got, they got kicked out. Um, now, with the forgiveness of sins that comes in baptism, we actually return to this Edenic state. We, we, uh, we start to see how God is repairing everything. And what this means is that while work is often still difficult in this world, we can see it not just as a penalty that's imposed on us, but as a way of working back toward uh, an appreciation of how good things are, a way to help other people way to contribute again to this project, this incredible human project of, uh, you know, that, that God is, is working on for us. To do this, we need uh, things like insight into our work to understand, so why is it that I'm doing this? How, uh, what is God inviting me to see in this work that I'm doing? Um, in my, my homily for St. Benedict's Feast Day, I was talking about, uh, you know, the fact that uh, we live together in society means we, justice means that we owe all of our fellow citizens something or other. Depending on, you know, what place they occupy, uh, we, but, you know, we owe the garbage collectors for taking away our garbage. You know, they get paid, of course, but we also owe them a certain kind of appreciation, right? Uh, we owe uh, our politicians, for doing the work of, of governing, even if we don't like the way they do it, <laughs> right? Um, and this means everybody's, so we're all connected in this and learning to see how everybody's work contributes to the flourishing of our world, uh, we can start to see how God is taking care of us. And again, this doesn't require us to change anything we're actually doing other than learning to perceive differently. I mentioned to the brothers this morning, uh, this idea of consolation is very important. So um, each week we bless one of the brothers who's going to serve table during the week. And when St. Benedict tells us to do this, he says it's really important that brothers serve at table because this increases charity. And as I was listening to this the other day, I thought, yeah, that would be nice if it increased charity. This is my experience all the time. <laughs> Because uh, sometimes when we're serving table, we're kind of in a rush to get it done. Because I want to eat, you know, because you can't eat until everybody's served. And, 
And then you have to get up and take the dishes away, and this guy never cleans his plate, so it's hard to stack because there's like <laughs> yucky food and there are corn cobs and all this stuff to where am I gonna put the corn cobs? And then, oh, I forgot there's a dessert. Ah, oh, I didn't get the ice cream out. Oh, it's gonna be hard and and uh, and then it's gonna melt. And and you know, so there's this kind of resentment that's going on. When the brother finishes his week. Uh, the, the verse he says, blessed are you, Lord God, for you have helped me and consoled me. Okay, so to increase in charity in this work of service, I need God's help. Uh, I, you know, I need the energy and, and the patience to do this well. Uh, I need attentiveness to brother's needs. Um, but I also need consolation. Now, the root of the word consolation is the Latin word soul, which means son. Right? So consolation means being illuminated as to the meaning of something that's, that seems hard to understand because it's unpleasant. Right? So we often talk about consolations and desolations in prayer. This is an Ignatian idea. Desolation is when prayer is really dark and I don't understand it and I'm bored with it and it's hard to do because I don't get anything out of it. Consolation happens when suddenly I understand and prayer is enlightening and it, it works. I, I come to feel that God is near and he's explaining things to me. Uh, it really is going on. So we need God's consolation so that our work helps us to increase in charity. Without God's consolation, without seeing in the work how God is acting. Uh, and, you know, among the other things, what we're doing when we serve at tables, imitating Jesus at the Last Supper, right? He actually serves the apostles, and then he tells them to go out and serve others, wash each other's feet, and so on. So this is a chance to uh, be like Christ and to help, uh, help others recover from their sins, to help others believe that they're worthy of being served by others, worthy of uh, enjoying a meal with uh, others who care about them. So all these things require a kind of inner consolation from God so that we see with a kind of illumination what is the meaning of it all. Okay. Um, otherwise, it's just work we've got to get through to get to something else. So this is one of the things, um, one of the things, again, about modern life that's hard is we tend to look at work as something we have to get through to get to something else rather than something that's good in and of itself. To see work as good in and of itself requires me uh, to have the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So work, uh, Benedictines are often held up as uh, you know, having sanctified work because St. Benedict uh, tells the monks, if you have to do, bring in the harvest yourself, don't be sad. Because that's what monks do. They just, you know, our fathers in the desert worked for their living and so should you. Uh, and that's, that means if you're the uh, abbot or if you're the novice or if you're whoever it is, it's expected that you'll do some manual labor and that this appreciation of manual labor has made possible a different way of seeing human beings because the laboring class in the ancient world was not thought worthy of, say, participation in politics. But basically, you, were, you might not have been a slave, but you were sort of one rung above uh, being a slave. And that meant that you just work. The rest of us had important things to do, like talk about politics. <laughs> right? Um, 
And Benedictine spirituality has changed that because he says, no, actually work, workers actually should be honored for the work they do. There's something very noble about that. Uh, another really important experience for me personally was uh, when I was in college, my summer job was on the maintenance and construction crew for the power utility in Green Bay. And uh, I had never really worked with my hands other than mowed some lawns and things like that. And um, I realized these guys knew a lot, like, you know, how to use the right tool, uh, how to work eight hours in the heat and not get tired. Uh, you know, the, the funny thing was the, the college guys would come out gunning, like carry stuff around for the first hour really fast, and then we'd be pooped out. And the, the 50, 60 year olds were like running circles around us. And like, how do they do it? Well, there's a, you know, you learn, there's a wisdom, there's an inner meaning to the work. And you can't go all out at the beginning. You know, you can't do that. There was a guy uh, who was incredible with machines. He would uh, put a little tiny trailer, like a 10-foot trailer on the back of a line truck. So line trucks have all these winches and gigantic machinery on them. So you can't see a 10-foot trailer behind you because uh, it's too small. And he would back up and like touch the taillight against the garage just to show off, you know. <laughs> And uh, whereas, again, the college guys would ram the, we would break the garage door because we would forget that there's a winch on top and you have to put the winch down before you go in the garage. And so you learn, like, that was a humbling experience. These guys who work every day know stuff. You know, they appreciate things. They appreciate tools. They appreciate how to be careful around electricity. You have to be really careful. Uh, I never got to do switching, for example. <laughs> uh, I, I did learn to do a little bit of wiring, so I was like electrician first class by the time I ended. But uh, um, so that was that was great to know. Um, now the reason I'm saying all this is because if work is noble simply because it's work and it's it's contributing to the human project, then I don't have to feel like when I'm working I have to get done so I can get to something else. I can actually be attentive to the work itself and see in this something that God has given me to do. And therefore it's sanctifying if I accept it that way. Um, now some, you know, some jobs, it, it's, I'm not saying you can never hurry or, uh, to you know, finish cleaning the bathroom so you can go out with your friends or whatever. Uh, that's, uh, I wouldn't be so picky as to, to claim that. But, uh, but I think sometimes it's very easy to fall into this trap of thinking that God isn't with me at work. That this, I have to be, I have to get done with work so I can pray. Um, so, I'm going to return to this idea because it sounds a little too easy. Um, a lot of the work I do in the monastery now, and I, what I've done for 15 out of the last, 16 out of the last 19 years, is I've done the accounting. And I will say this uh, work of this sort is not the kind of thing that you, is easy to do while focusing on its inner worth and dignity and God's presence, because you have to use your mind. You have to pay attention, right? And a lot of times you're doing lots of sums of very tricky numbers and, and you've got to keep track of what you're doing. Otherwise you have to start all over again. You get to the end and it doesn't balance. Ah, so, um, so there's some sorts of work. I think of someone like Isaac Newton writing his Principia, you know, he had to focus really hard because he was thinking of things that nobody had thought of before. And he was doing these crazy calculations like, 
How fast should the moon have to move to orbit the Earth at one mile? Like one mile up, instead of how many thousands of miles it's actually orbiting. Uh, now to figure this out requires, it required him to invent calculus. <laughs> and so when you're inventing calculus, you've got to be focusing. You can't be, you can't be praying very easily. I would say that doesn't mean you're not praying, but it requires a different kind of strategy. So um, one idea is, there, there are a couple ways to do this. One is this, uh, at the beginning of work, as St. Benedict says, I should ask God to make it profitable, you know, that the work I'm going to do is going to bear fruit in some way. And then I throw myself into it. And if I don't think about God at every moment during that time, it's all right because I'm doing it for God. Just in the same way that, um, you know, I don't think it's necessarily going to be the case that if a spouse goes off to work, that every moment of work, you're going to be thinking about the money you're earning for your family. Uh, the fact that you're there working and trying to do a good job and keep your job, maybe get a promotion or a raise, that's all. You're doing all that for your family, even if you're not thinking about them directly at that moment. All right. Just at the, the same thing as um, we sometimes get turned around in sacramental theology. Uh, I mentioned before uh, you need a validly ordained priest with valid matter and uh, correct form and everything. You also need the priest to intend to celebrate the Mass. So for instance, when I'm practicing with the guys who are deacons, and I say, this is what you do. You take the bread and you say, you know, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread in his sacred hands and looking up to heaven, etc. This is my body, which will be given up for you. Uh, I didn't just say Mass, even though I'm holding valid matter and I'm a priest and I've said the words, because we're just practicing. I didn't intend to celebrate Mass. Now, because intention is a part of uh, what's required for a valid Mass, sometimes you'll have uh, priests and others get turn turned into knots like, oh, I wasn't concentrating exactly when I was saying those words. But we know that the intention was there because you put on vestments, you went through all the other stuff, you did, you did the liturgy of the word, you offered the offerings at the beginning. And so if, you're, if your mind wanders a little bit when things are at the consecration, it doesn't nullify your intention. You, the whole reason you're there is you're intending to celebrate Mass. In the same way, uh, just because you don't intend at every moment at work to be thinking about God or to be thinking about your family or whomever it is that you're doing it for doesn't nullify the fact that that's why you're there. Like you wouldn't have gone to work that day if you didn't care about your family, right? Because you know that if you get fired, then that's going to harm your family in some way. So yeah, even though I don't feel like going to work today, I go. And even if I don't think about my, my wife or my kids at every moment, I still am praying as it were. I'm still doing the act, action for the right reasons, okay? Uh, in, the, in the big picture of things. Now, I want to go to um, another idea, and that has to do with when we can't be consciously praying or contemplating, we're still in union with the body of Christ and others are doing it with us, right? So we can actually re rely on uh, the fact that we're part of a big body and if everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing, or at least a good portion of us are, uh, we can kind of lean on each other at times when we're not at our best, when we can't get something done. Um, you know, it's the case sometimes monks are sick and they can't get to the office. Well, I can dispense them from the office, but they still get the merits of the office because the rest of us are praying with them because we're brothers. Um, Similarly, we often talk about the merits of the saints, or we used to more frequently. Now we are again with the new translation of the Missal. 
Uh, and the idea there is that because we're part of the body of Christ and so are the saints, uh, the things they do well, actually we participate in some of the fruits of that because we're all connected, just in the same way that uh, um, if you, uh, let's see, what would be an example? If you have something wrong with you and you need to take medication orally, uh, just because you're not applying it directly to the place that needs fixing, like let's say you have some inflammation in your arm, and so you take some anti-inflammatory drugs through, through your mouth, be, just because your mouth is doing the work, it doesn't mean that your arm isn't going to get the benefit <laughs> of receiving the medication. And uh, there are many things in, in uh, medicine where the... Um, I have to be careful because I actually have a doctor here. So. <laughs> uh, but it's the case oftentimes you, you, you treat the whole body and then every part will, will benefit from that. So just like we know that we think better if we're in good shape, if we exercise, our minds will be in better shape uh, because everything's connected. So in the same way, if the saints have these merits and if others in the church are doing things that are holy and sanctifying, we're going to benefit from this. Just in the same way, it's more easy, it's easier to see when someone does something bad in the Catholic Church. We all suffer for it, right? That's easy to see. But it's also the case that when someone is growing in holiness, we're all benefiting from it in some way. And so if I'm not at my best, or I can't be thinking about God at every moment, I can remember that I'm still part of the body of the church, and therefore, uh, I can relax to a certain extent and not put too much pressure on myself. Now, I want to talk a little bit about monks before we stop here. And I'm going to stop a little early because I'd like to have a little time for questions at the end. So the, the famous question that everybody asks monks is this. Yeah, so what do you guys do? <laughs> right? So, uh, like, do you run a soup kitchen? Uh, do you just, like, sit around and pray all day? Right? And, um, well, we do all kinds of things. Uh, but as I'm going to say in a moment, what's more important is sort of the fact that there are monks at all, or nuns too, right? Any, any contemplatives. He's got a wonderful note from uh, Mother Teresita of the Poor Clares down in Lamont. Uh, we haven't seen each other in about 15 years, but we correspond uh, by letters. Uh, and, and she actually has a, a, a typewriter, you know. <laughs> I mean, they're very poor, and so they don't, they don't have computers or internet access there. So if you want to get in touch with them, they don't answer the phone either. So if you want to get in touch with them, you have to write them a letter. Um, but it's nice to be able to support each other this way because we have a similar uh, uh, meaning in the church. So we, we have a similar life, but the key thing is that there are poor clairs at all, right? It's not what the poor clairs do or don't do. It's the fact that they exist that's really interesting and changes the game in a way. So we had a um, uh, husband and wife and son come to the office a um, week and a half ago. They're not Christian. Uh, they're coming because uh, we're, we're working on a project with the son and he wanted to see the church and he brought his parents with them. Afterward, the father was so enthusiastic. It was really amazing. And he just said, you know, I just encountered in your chant sense that you're men of peace and that this is really, really important. We need to have men of peace around and that this peace is going to radiate out in something. I just know it, he said. And I thought, this is very moving. But again, it's not that we were sort of doing anything. Yeah, we have to get in there and chant and everything. But it's the fact that we exist that was so astonishing to him. 
that you guys are this. You, you stand for peace in some way that he could tell. Um, I'm sure he doesn't know that the Benedictine motto is pox, you know, uh, but that's, that's, God must be doing something in our life because it, it made sense to someone who's not a Christian, right? Um, here's another example. Uh, there's a friend of mine who's going to do a radio show about the monastery, and he and I have been talking about the script for this. And he said, you know, this is going to sound like it's cheating, but no matter what you say in the interview, whatever goes on the radio show is going to be interesting because it's you saying it. Okay, and not, now what he means is not me personally, Father Peter, but because you're a monk. And most people don't even realize that there are monks around and they never hear you talk. So just the fact that you would say anything at all is really interesting to most people. Okay, so it has to do with who you are, not with what you do. So the question about what do monks do, you could answer it in a million ways. We do, we do laundry, you know. <laughs> um, I, I do oblate talks, uh, but I wouldn't have to do either of those things. Uh, someone else could do those. Uh, the, the, the really interesting thing is that God calls persons to be monks and nuns, and then people say yes, and they become that. That's what, that's what happens. Now, the, the, uh, a monk is someone who, by grace, uh, attempts to cooperate in the renewal of his mind. So this is... Uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12. Uh, renew your mind so that you think differently. You think according to the mind of Christ. You see what God is actually doing. You see God's presence in everything. So we see things from a spiritual point of view. Cashin says in one of his conferences, uh, we practice the continual reading of scriptures so that we'll have a spiritual point of view. So that we'll see everything from the Holy Spirit's vantage point. Now, the basis of all this, again, is baptism and the other sacraments. Um, I wrote down here, the sacraments are like the decoder ring of the spiritual life. <laughs> now, that's probably a, a joke for Generation X and, and younger. But uh, it's how do, we, how do we know that we've misinterpreted things before and that this is the right interpretation? Well, somehow or other, the sacraments... Uh, participating in the Eucharist, remembering our baptism, participating in confession. Confession is a way to remember our baptism, by the way, and re, sort of re-energize the grace that was given to us at baptism. Um, hearing God forgiving our sins, absolving us of sin, holding Christ in our hands, tasting him in our mouths, with other people, like uh, noticing things about the Mass, hearing the readings, uh, noticing what the priest does, uh, noticing how careful he is with the, the host, for example, the fact that we're very careful about how we wash the dishes at the end, right? This is very, it's all very scripted. This starts to teach us how to see God as we go out from Mass and see how God feeds us at other times during the day, for example. Um, there is uh, this, this, one of my favorite poems of all time, though it's almost impossible to understand, but that's the sort of thing I like. Um, the Anathemata by David Jones. Uh, the, almost the entire poem, it's a 200 page poem that's really difficult to, to parse. It, it's kind of all a daydream in the midst of David Jones sitting in mass and thinking about, wow, this is the, 
God who created everything, and here he is in my hands. <laughs> and it's the whole of this poem is just kind of him thinking about that. <laughs> and it's, it's an incredible contemplative exercise because he brings in all of sort of cosmic history, human history, the movement of peoples all over the world. And, um, and it's all sort of summed up in the host, you know, that there is Christ, there is the savior of all the world. All, everything has meaning because of him. He, he is the one that, that helps us to see what everything means. So again, the point of a monk's life is to become more and more aware of this reality. And here's the thing, you as oblates uh, partake of the merits of our life. And so hopefully in you know, our being together, in our talking together, working together, praying together, uh, something of what I'm seeing, my brothers are seeing, you can see too. I can show it to you in some way. And you can grow in this renewal of your mind. And we can do this together. You don't have to actually be monks to do this, right? So we, we can share this with you. And you can share, you can help us out with ushering, for example, if you want to help with solemn vespers. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, you know, we can do this together. And just because you're not monks, uh, but you're part of the project, uh, then this will help you then when you are trying to figure out what is it I'm supposed to do as, a, as an oblate. Well, some of what you're to do is just what you're already doing, right? But with a different kind of awareness, and this is what I'm hoping to share with you today or I'm trying to share with you. Now, again, some things you'll want to change, right? Uh, but if it comes out of uh, an awareness of what God is doing, a gratitude for what God is doing, it's going to be much more productive than if it comes out of a sense of fear or obligation. That's not necessarily bad, by the way. Sometimes we need to feel a certain obligation. But in the long run, as uh, St. Teresa of Avila would say, we're going to make a lot more progress focusing on God's greatness than on our failures. So keep looking at God. Uh, let me keep pointing him out to you as best I can, etc., etc. So the last thing uh, I'm going to say about this is... Um, uh, our identities, our being, this is all a gift. Uh, anthropologists, I, I was going to write this down so I could remember, but anthropologists will talk about um, ascribed identity versus, anybody know this? Uh, ascribed identity is what you get just from being a part of a group. You don't, you don't choose it for yourself. It's just given to you. But then you can also like stake out your own identity by things you choose to do. Uh, so these are two ways of uh, identifying ourselves. It used to be that uh, we inherited our, our identities in a very thick way from the culture we were in. So for instance, you know, I'm the, I'm the son of Daniel and, and the son of Mary. Uh, my father's father was Louis and his mother was Irene. They were Polish. My mother's family is German. Uh, my father's from Chicago. My mother's from central Wisconsin. Uh, I'm the oldest son. I have three younger sisters. I have five stepsisters and stepbrothers. Um, I, my parents were musicians. Um, I'm Catholic. Uh, these are all things I didn't choose for myself. Uh, and I can uh, decide whether or not I'm going to let that be my identity because I'm modern. <laughs> modern people do this. They decide, I don't 
I'm just going to make a, a, a life for myself separate from all of these identities that were given to me. Now, there's, some, there's something good about that possibility because some of these ascribed identities uh, were not just. Okay, so for example, if you were born a slave or in, uh, if you, in certain times of our cultural history or in certain places even today, you're born a woman, then there are certain things that are not allowed, right? That, that you, you lack a certain freedom to take certain opportunities in life. And so some of the work of the modern world and giving us the opportunity to try new things is good. But the, the problem is we start to lose track of things that God has already given us, like our gender, like our families, like our faith, like our country. Uh, and these things, instead of receiving these with a kind of gratitude um, and, and a kind of uh, ease, we feel like we've constantly have work to do to make ourselves into something else, right? So this is another aspect of this doing versus being. I can't change who my parents are. Uh, contrary to certain efforts in the world today, I can't change my gender. Uh, I, can't, I can't change uh, the fact that I was baptized Catholic when I was uh, a little baby. Uh, I can't change the fact that uh, I grew up where I grew up. Um, and there's a certain thing that God determined all of that for me. Right? God, God knew all this and he said, yeah, that would be good for you. And so if I can accept that with gratitude and say, this is who I am and this is good, again, then I can see, well, why would God have chosen this for me? How does this make sense? You know, um, what, is, what is God inviting me to see about myself? The, the advantage of some of that is, again, it takes the pressure off of me to have to make myself into something else that may or may not be what God is asking, right? I can, I can accept what's already there and learn to see it as a gift, as being good, because God made it that. You know, if it comes from God, it's good. Uh, and so... My last thing as I'll wrap up is that a lot of this is uh, learning to accept things as they are and to see in them how God is revealing his saving presence. Um, I often assign the guys when they arrive here uh, Romano Guardini's book on the virtues and uh, it sometimes scandalizes them because you know, we, we tend to have sort of more traditional men entering our monastery uh, from more sort of conservative backgrounds and so on. And the first thing Guardini says is, you know, the first thing you have to do in virtue is, is accept everything, accept everybody, right? And this sounds like the, uh, this sounds like it's liberal or something. <laughs> like, oh, we should just accept everything. But it's actually true because uh, if, if God is going to allow things to be as they are, at some level, so do I. It would benefit me to say like, okay, God could step in and change things if he wanted to, but he's decided not to for whatever reason. And so the place to start is with things as they are. And uh, that takes a lot of pressure off again. Instead of trying to find fault with everything or fighting against things that are, I simply accept them. But here's the key thing. Uh, I accept them with, the, with a spiritual understanding that somehow God is going to communicate his presence through the things as they are, and that this is going to be something that's going to 
benefit me and benefit everyone else for seeing this because God is at work even now. 